let me hand over to Sophie and Beck, um, who are going to be here, uh, so I'm going to get off stage, um, who are going to be talking about the, the, the process or the, the, the need to resituate ethnography. Um, they're both anthropologists um, by training and experience in the area of design research, and they're going to talk to us about how we sort of change that positioning of ethnography to broaden away from humans um, and look at a, a different perspective. So please join me in welcoming Sophie and Beck to the stage. Thank you. All right, good morning, everybody. So I know Steve has already done this, but we wanted to take another moment to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we live on today. Wherever you are in Australia or wherever you are in the world, let's think about our connection to country and place and space and respect for the Indigenous people. For Sophie and I, that is usually the Gadigal and the Wongal people of the Eora Nation. But this event is being held on the land of the Kulin Nation. This is especially relevant for our topic today, which is why we have chosen to do a second acknowledgement of country, even though they can feel a bit like a box ticking exercise if you do them again and again at every presentation. Uh, but connecting with land and country is a key theme, as you'll see in our talk. So a bit about us. So Sophie and I are people who are very easily annoyed. We like to follow rabbit holes and we don't know when to stop asking why. We pulled this talk together as a good excuse to sort of explore some thoughts that have been bubbling around in our heads for a little while and that we've been mulling over and also a good excuse to travel to Melbourne, something that neither of us has done since uh, pre the pandemic. Anyone who knows me know that I have a love of history. It's important to understand where you come from before you can talk about where you're going. So let's dive in to Malinowski and beyond. So anthropology was established as a recognized field of study in the 1840s in America and Europe. The use of questionnaires were utilized by French naval expe expeditions to Australia in 1800 and 1803, and later became a common tool of ethnologists. The Royal Anthropological Society Notes and Queries of Anthropology is one of the first major questionnaire studies, published in six editions from 1874 to 1951. And in the US, L. H. Morgan's Circular was issued via the Smithsonian. Henry S. Schoolcraft was one of the first Americans to publish in an ethnographic style information. The Smithsonian was a big supporter of anthropological research, starting in 1846, and later the Bureau of Ethnology began in 1879 to gather information about the indigenous people of North America. Francis Boss, a German researcher, did much to further ethnography in the late 1800s, and he was one of the first to apply the scientific method of anthropology emphasizing the research first before generating a theory method. Participant observations has long been considered the domain of anthropology. Its origins trace back to Molinowski's fieldwork with the Troban Islanders in 1941. He was born in 1884 to, in Krakow to Polish parents and he studied at many universities across the world, earning PhDs and working with some of the best anthropologists of the time and of all times. But instead, 
Uh, sorry, when he travelled to uh, Papua New Guinea to t start his research, World War I broke out. And being Polish-born and connections to Austria, he was not able to return home without facing imprisonment. Instead, he was granted the opportunity to stay where he was and continue his research. It was at this time that he became a forced migrant. He was relatively new to the area and alone and a bit confused. He was only there because he was forced to be there by the authorities at the time. And it was simply not safe or in his best interest to return home. So therefore, he began the, ro the road of immersive participant ethnograph ethnography. And it's interesting to me that at such a coincidence of timing, nationality, and geopolitical turmoil led to the development of a field of practice that can we can credit today with the work that lots of people in this room do, with the development of new products and services. But what is it? Ethnography or anethnography or ethnographic? Are these all terms for the same things? Are they different versions? Let's get into it. A method. This is the one that we are most familiar with. Ethnography is a method, a qualitative version of research that involves studying and documenting social and cultural phenomena in real life settings. Ethnography is focused on observing and understanding human behavior and interactions within their natural uh, area. Researchers conducting an ethnographic study spend time with participants up close and gain insights into social interactions, collect data through participant observations, face-to-face -face interviews, etc. It is often talked about as in-home interviews, but the importance is in context of the event, the process, or the relationship that's being studied. This is the part of ethnography that has been commercialized, and we find it most problematic. And we actually think that beavers and ibises can show us the way forward, but we'll get there in a minute. A noun and a writing style and ethnography informs the reader through a narrative immersive style, often using sensory details and storytelling techniques. Sometimes called thick descriptions, it involves detailed descriptions of the culture, behavior, mutual differences, contexts, and practices. The example I have here is an ethnography of fragrance. This ethnographic report explores the meaning of perfumery in the Islamic world. By retelling the stories which have become associated with specific fragrances, the author, Dian Jung, simultaneously introduces the reader to the history and culture of Islam and the southern edges of Yemen, exploring cultural exchanges and empires through the meaning of fragrance. This is only one example of an ethnography, but does capture the essence of the subject. And then an ethno, uh, sorry, the term ethnographic can be used to describe any practices that utilize or borrow from this, including filmmaking, photography, or other forms of cultural representation. Sophie and I are both old enough to remember ethnographic films being played in school. 
These are historically documentary style filmmakers shot by Western filmmakers about not Western cultures. Sometimes it can be ethnographic without it being completed by anthropologists or without it being in the practice of anthropology. But that actually covers a lot of different things. So I want to stop us for a moment and say, if it is a noun, a style of writing, a method and an adjective, then what makes it distinct from other forms of research or practices that we may have in design research? There are many definitions to what makes something ethnographic or an ethnography that are being argued and discussed by academics all over the world. And I'm sure there are actually a lot of opinions in this room about that subject as well. And we would love to hear them. Ethnography as a research practice is a bit of a bowerbird. But for this talk, for the purpose of today, we're gonna to focus on these six things as being distinct for ethnography. The first one being the point of view of the subject. So there is an emphasis on looking at the world through the subject's own eyes and from their point of view. The next is descriptive. It's rich in detail and interpretation. Immersion focuses on the lived experiences of the individual and of the community. The analysis is inductive which means we don't know what needs to be known or what will be known before we start the research. It focuses on symbolic meaning, explores the symbols and meanings of the actions and the choices that the subjects make, and has a systemic interpretation, meaning that it makes observations and findings of the system that people live in and the systems that they interact with and not the subject alone. Anthropology's remit has frequently been defined as asking the question, what does it mean to be human? But what if humans aren't the center of what we do? What if anthropology as a field considered and studied all species, not just human? Could we continue to answer the question of being human without our current focus on human centeredness? What if perhaps, ironically, anthropology was less human only. We are possibly one of the best professions to explain the current era in which we find ourselves. As a species, we live alongside and pose serious questions for our combined future. We need to understand and address the challenges, not just for humans, but for those who li we live alongside. And this means we need to broaden the remit of anthropology beyond its current application of human-centered knowledge, methods, and framing that we are so used to today. But it hasn't actually always been that way. We think we need to reacquaint ourselves as a discipline with the scholarly works that already exist in our past of our own discipline. Non-human ethnography was actually quite common in the field in the history but it has been forgotten. An American beaver and his works, the 1868 publication by Henry Lewis Morgan is an excellent example of a valuable ethnography and ethnographic research into another species. Sadly, this book can now unironically be found on a website for forgotten books, forgottenbooks.com, but I would recommend going to find it. How times have changed. 
But I also want to talk about ibises. These birds are viewed as gods and now colloquially called bin chickens. Ibises were not commonly seen in Sydney until the 1950s. Their natural habitat is the wetlands in the Murray-Darling Basin, located in the interior of Australia. The construction of irrigation infrastructure in the Murray-Darling Basin during the mid-20th century has contributed to an increase in the ibises that we see in urban areas, as they were forced to search for new habitats and new food sources. We could see this transformation as a sign of our interconnectedness, but I think we should also see it as an act of resilience. Ibises, and I know, now know a lot of facts about ibises, will come and pick up cane toads, a completely new species for them. They will fling them about, causing them to stress and expel the toxins, and then wash them underwater or on wet grass to consume them whole. And unlike its city-dwelling cousins, the straw-necked black ibis has earned the affectionate name from farmers as farmer's friend. This bird that has black feathers and a straw-like plumage around its neck and throat prefers the slower pace of a rural life and feeds on hordes of grasshoppers and locusts which will eat and plague Australian crops. We know that we are impacting the environment but the use of the term bin chickens and positioning them as a pest allows us to disassociate from our interconnectedness as a species. Even farmers' friends, although it is positive, is still human-centred. But what if we thought about the ibis and other species from a non-human-centred point of view? How might we change the way we value them, see them, or behave to them? Like the forgotten American beaver, and demonstrate our human-centeredness. Without conscious thought or purpose, rock doves, or better known to us as pigeons, have exploded in numbers in our cities and urban areas because our built environment that we have created for us recreates their native home perfectly, which is cliffs and rock faces. Birds serve as an excellent indicator of the environment. But what about those that can't adapt? Australia is in the top five of extinctions of animals and plant species, and the top 10 for endangered or threatened species. These numbers come from the Australian State of Environment report in 2021. Climate change impacts every creature, every living creature on this earth, and our attempted solutions will also. Zoonotic diseases, including COVID-19, are caused by not designing for the welfare of animals within our society and putting perceived human needs first. But let's get back to ethnography and its practice. I almost went too far down the rabbit hole. I want to introduce you to a theory that was developed by an ethnographer and will become important in a moment as it's helpful for wrestling with the ideas that we have today. Transculturalization. Transculturalization is the process of transforming, of transitioning from one culture to another, involving both the acquisition of a culture, the loss and or uprooting of a previous culture. But it also carries the idea of the creation of new cultural phenomena or neo-culturalization. 
This theory was developed by Ferdinand Ortez in his seminal works, The Cuban Counterpoint, which treated tobacco and sugar, both agricultural commodities, as social characters within history and used them to explore the interactions and interrelatedness of the Spanish colonizers, the African slaves they brought with them to work there, and the indigenous Cubans, the Taino. Sophie's gonna take us through this in action. So, ethnography seems to go through a cycle of being discovered and rediscovered by organizations for everything from strategy to innovation to workplace culture. First in the 80s, then the 90s, and the 2000s. Although a quick search on Harvard Business Review suggests that it may be becoming more frequent now with an article written every two to five years since the early 2000s. However, each time it has only been a focus on it as a research method. As Beck noted earlier, ethnography is more than a method. It's also an adjective, a noun, and a style of writing. Using transcultural theory, that Beck just introduced, we can analyze what was lost, what was gained and created as the world of ethnography interacted with the world of organizations and business, uh, in the world of organizations and business and its central question became defined as what it meant to be human. So what did we lose? By focusing on it as only a research method, ethnography became disconnected from its academic discipline of anthropology, losing its theoretical foundations. And with its focus on humans, we lost its relationship with and inclusion of other species. What did we gain? Ethnography applied in human-centered design has given it scale and influence, a seat at the table that has been much sought after. We've also been part of building empathy for others and developing beautifully designed products, services, and experiences. Yet, we've created a version of ethnography that is ultimately reduced to ethnography as method just one option for researchers to use in qualitative projects. Its emphasis on context, perspective taking, and systemic observation reduced to an in-home one-hour interview. We've essentially backed ourselves into a corner. So how might we resituate? Our human-centeredness has also been heavily influenced by Western culture and a tendency to be enamored with exploring what separates humans and animals. Language, the use of tools, the ability to understand death or consciousness, once again, focusing on what makes us human. But dolphins have names and play. Cockatoos carry toolkits. Elephants mourn their loved ones. So if we are to resituate, where should we look for change? Firstly, other industries, especially documentary filmmaking, have continued to develop this practice. My Octopus Teacher utilizes many of the practices and principles of ethnography, and I highly recommend this film if you haven't seen it. A filmmaker forges an unusual friendship with an octopus who lives in the kelp forests of South Africa. Learning about this animal's world and being taught it's an immersive portrait of friendship and an unlikely teacher. We can look to indigenous ways of knowing. Dr. Norman Sheehan, a Wiradjuri man, an academic specializing in indigenous research methods and respectful design, who has presented at UX Australia in the past, 
describes how ants, like all other creatures and living things within indigenous philosophy, have knowledge demonstrated by the order, their behaviour and their actions within the purposeful ecosystem. Sheehan defines indigenous knowledge as an authentic epistemology, where knowledge is played out and demonstrated through performance, images, stories, routines that work together. A living flow of shared human and non-human experience that connects to a living, caring, related people. In this, the ants demonstrate that they are part of a system as a whole. According to scholars in the area, the whole system view within indigenous knowledge emerges from the dreaming. Although stories may differ from nation to nation, all have common characteristics. The actions of creative beings mark the landforms, plants, people, and animals, and in doing so, taught the people to care for what they have created. Their creatures were interdependent, interrelated, and interresponsible. The Yalin people of the Northern Territory see animals as possessing all the same qualities as each other, just being of a different shape. There are animals that possess these qualities and the only difference between us and dingoes is the way that we are formed in our physicality. In Rose, there is a quality of all living and non-living beings. No creature or item is, has an inherent special value or power Similarly, the Maori people, the Polynesian indigenous people of New Zealand, have been campaigning for more than 160 years to protect the river. In 2017, it was granted personhood as a way of achieving the same legal standing as a human. This demonstrates the extent in which indigenous knowledge systems view the system as a whole and consider animals and countries as equal actors and it offers us a way to learn to de-center humans from our design and our experiences. We can also embrace theory. So social theory or anthropological theory refers to the arguments, hypotheses, and thought experiments and explanations of how human societies or elements are structured, how they come to be formed, how they change, how they develop over time, and how they disappear. Theories are analytic tools for us to understand, explain, and make predictions on given subject matters. They should change the way we ask questions. They should impact the designs we research and the way that we analyze our findings. These are just a few examples. There's diffusion, which asks how do things move across time and space. Functionalism, which is what is the purpose of a thing or a structure. Ethnoscience, how do people perceive, understand, and classify the world that they live in? Interactionalism, how do members of a community interact when they are or aren't a part of the community? Interpretism, if cultural narratives exist, how do our values in them change when we tell those stories? Structuralism, which is the underlying logic that connects things to this culture. And then, transculturalization, which we've already used in this talk to help explore this topic. So what's the future for ethnography then? Firstly, to recap, we're arguing that ethnography, that the ethnography that we are familiar with in research today has become disconnected from its foundations. 
is often interpreted as just a type of qualitative interview with a human being in their home. Ethnography applied as a human-centred design method has been narrowly defined and, as explicitly noted in its name, human-centred. This form of ethnography is completely focused on the, on the needs of a single species, despite the fact that our experiences, well-being and survival are entangled with other non-human beings. It's worth reiterating here that the partnership of ethnography and HCD has been very successful. HCD has given us beautifully designed product services and experiences, such as office spaces built for the staff that are inhabiting, and working, inhabiting them and working there, seamless digital experiences for citizens to access government services, improvements in accessibility of products and devices, banking apps and financial services for customers that are simple and intuitive to use. But it's still all human focused. Where are those rich studies of appreciation and awe of the American beaver? or the indigenous voices and perspectives about other creatures, such as the value placed on the knowledge of ants. Thinking back to our earlier reference of transculturalization theory in what is lost, gained and created when ethnography and organizations come together, what if we were more purposeful in this process of the type of ethnography that we are creating? Now a brief but relevant side note here is that that picture is a picture of Foucault's pendulum, which was used first in 1851 to demonstrate the Earth's rotation. We're using it here as we started to think that the definition and practice of ethnography had gone too far in one direction, and much like a pendulum, it might need to start to swing back. However, we felt this was us getting caught in familiar patterns of linear, often Western-style thinking, as pendulums operate in linear motions themselves. We wanted a metaphor that was less linear, more three-dimensional, and that's what that's why we like the idea of Foucault's pendulum. So what if we could give an intentional push or a tilt of a 3D pendulum of ethnography? Where could we be? How could we bring the same thoughtfulness to other species? What would our project designs and theoretical starting points be? Who would our participants be? And what outcomes could we deliver if we deliberately created a more than human-centered approach to ethnographic research? At this point, I want to introduce you to a branch of ethnography that very explicitly embraces the type of ethnography we're talking about, multi-species ethnography. We think this can inspire us to how we might reposition and practice ethnography. It was first introduced in 2010 in a special edition of the journal Cultural Anthropology. In a nutshell, multi-species ethnography takes seriously the lives and points of view of other than humans, whose lives we are caught up with in complex relations, uh, whose, whose lives we are caught up, sorry, whose lives we are caught up in complex relations with human lives, politics, economies, and cultures. Importantly, there's a bunch of uh, um, definitions up there that elaborate on it further, but the key points are that it studies a species, a range of species other than human, that it acknowledges the entanglements, interconnectedness, and relationships of other species with humans. It doesn't assume assu human exceptionalism. It addresses how species affect and are affected by politics, economics, and culture. And by doing so, it brings the benefits of expanding our understanding of the world around us from multiple viewpoints and helps to dismantle and question dominant human and often Western ways of knowing and thinking. But we can also push our thinking a little further into non-human connections and entanglements between not just non-human species, such as animals, plants and bacteria, but also natural landscapes such as rivers, 
or mountain ranges and non-living things such as robots, machines, artificial intelligence or data sets. So what might this form of ethnographic research look like? Could we develop personas of mountains or rivers alongside human ones? Go into the field with companion species who act as our animal interpreters? Have a client who is a threatened frog species? Conduct research with participants who are deep fakes? Study robot to robot or algorithm to satellite interactions? Use our insights into another species to create non-human forms of artificial intelligence? Or might part of our work be in educating the public about species based on our ethnographic research? For instance, that bees bump into humans to warn them of encroaching near their hive. While some of this probably sounds a bit unrealistic, here are some actual examples. The Animal, hum uh, Animal Computer Interaction Lab in the UK has conducted participatory workshops with assistance dogs to design indoor spaces and technology from a dog's point of view. And there are some really great um, resources online about how they did that, uh, including videos and um, descriptions of the workshop. There's Anne Galloway's projects uh, uh, that study the future of merino sheep breeding in New Zealand in the face of things like climate change and animal welfare concerns. Her work incorporates ethnography and speculative fiction and has even culminated in an artwork being accepted as part of the Museum of Applied Arts Collection in Vienna. She talks of experiencing a state of oneness with the world when she was sitting with her flock of sheep. Because as a prey animal, when her sheep are calm, she knows that she's truly safe in those moments. She notes the ways they communicate with their ears and small body movements, not their eyes. And that to successfully communicate with a sheep is not to use any of our human assumed modes of communication. She also talks of how funny they are and how they like to play, how the sheep know things better than her in all sorts of ways, and how they negotiate ways of being together with her. That they smell differently, see differently, and live at completely different time scale, and that it's the most profoundly different way of being in the world that she's ever participated in. There's also Sarah Watmore's work, which critiques the opposition between nature and culture as represented in scientific and environmental and popular discourses. And lastly, another example that I wanted to call out was Tom Van Doren and Deborah Bird Rose, who have explored what a more equitable multi-species city could be based on the knowledge and urban touch points of penguins and flying foxes, and that actually took place in Sydney. So why might now be a good time to promote, to promote this type of ethnography? Firstly, within ethnography, we've been acknowledging the progress made in applying ethnography into commercial settings, but also debating its narrow definition for years. In academic circles, anthropologist Tim Ingold has argued that ethnography has become an overused term and, I quote, has broken loose from its theoretical moorings. Elsewhere, the tendency of ethnography being defined as a type of interview only is noted as not only a problem, but that it also separates it from the vast trove of research and data collection methods that eth ethnography typically uses. In industry, ethnography conferences such as EPIC critique the tendency in commercial settings to define ethnography as being uniquely able to access real people in real situations. These pioneering commercial ethnographers note that it was a useful starting point, but we now need to move beyond it. So within design, 
there's increasing acknowledgement to move beyond human-centeredness. Some of these approaches would already be familiar to attendees here today, such as post-human-centered design, environmental design, and designing with country. Basically, it seems that we're well aware of the problem. Um, however, we've got work to do. Here's uh, results of a Google search for the hum human-centered. This is more than human-centered. <laughs> when does Google ever return zero? This is ethnography, and this is ethnography in, oh, sorry, oops, sorry. Oh, no. Sorry, guys. That is ethnography compared to multi-species ethnography. Um, that's uh, multi-species ethnography in red, right down the bottom there. So although there's interest in ethnography, and it's often rediscovered, um, we know that knowledge, about knowledge and searches for multi-species ethnography just does, doesn't even register. So, sorry, something different going on down there. Um, so how might we start to move towards doing the type of ethnography that incorporates different um, beings and knowledge? And we'd like to suggest a few practical steps. Firstly, increasing the knowledge of the foundations of anthropology and ethnography so that we move past real people and the problem and the real, the real people problem in ethnography and definitions of ethnography is interview only. Secondly, adapt current and familiar tools to extend to other species, so we broaden into multi-species approaches. And the third step might be to then extend from consideration of other species to other non-human things such as robots, AI, and automated objects. So none of this is particularly revolutionary, but looking at it, all of a sudden ethnography doesn't look like just an in-home interview anymore. So we hope that this talk today contributes in positive ways to discussions about how to apply ethnography. Thanks for letting us share our thinking, for coming down the rabbit hole with us. And if this has sparked any ideas for you, we would like to hear from you as we're on a journey of learning and unlearning too. And here are a couple of things we've read or are waiting in the post for them <laughs> or on our reading list that you might like also. And lastly, a bunch of references, um, and also a big shout out to um, the graphics on here as well for our fabulous white ibis. Um, so Liam Murray, who very graciously let us use that. Thank you. Thank you. Just having a, a look in the Slack channel, there aren't questions through there, but do people here have questions? And if so, raise your hand and I'll bring the mic over to you. And if not, then I will take the opportunity to ask some questions. We have some predicted questions as well. You are? We had some predicted questions as well. Oh, did you? Yeah, we did. What was... <laughs> wow, you yeah. like really, really prepped. You want to ask, like... We Your own question? That somebody <laughs> would call us on the fact that anthropology is often like anthro for human apology, the study of. Mm. Yeah. But what's your response? <laughs> that it actually means flock or nation is another interpretation or translation for it. Mm. So it's not necessarily humans. I, I was struck by 
uh, during the talk, um, I was struck by the idea that a lot of a lot of challenges that we face today are the result of humans separating themselves from nature, just in terms of how we view it. We view you know, nature and the environment as something separate from humans and human activity. This feels like a way of reconnecting um, and resituating not only ethnography, but us um, as part of the natural world and, and how we sit within that system. I mean, I agree, <laughs> um, but sorry, the question. Uh, yeah, do, do you agree? And and yes, and absolutely. What would you what would you say to that? Well, I guess uh, Sophie mentioned at the end that this is a process of us of you know relearning. We've grown up in this space where we have been separated from animals and nature and in like non-living creatures. So the idea that they are all equal and that we are all part of a system together changes a lot of ways that you live if you really embrace that as a thought. Yeah, I, I, I think historically we called it the enlightenment, that process of separating ourselves and, mm -hmm. and in hindsight it may not have been quite so enlightening. Yeah, I try, I'm trying to... Um I'm trying to think because I'm constantly watching videos and lectures and all that sort of stuff. So, and somebody, I'm trying to, I, and I, but I can't get the reference for you right now. But it was exactly that. Basically, the Enlightenment probably shouldn't have been called the Enlightenment. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think the Dark Ages referred to themselves as such. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. No, that's true. That's very true. Um, yeah. Sorry. Hello. Thank you for the presentation. I just had a question which is about how do you go about implementing this and go beyond humans in your own organizations? Like, how do you vouch for that? Have you built personas of trains? Or, <laughs> like, how does that work? I'm here today as a private citizen, not as a representative of any government organizations. We are in caretaker mode, and I am not to answer any <laughs> questions to do with my job. I'm sorry. But how is it received um, usually? Like, internally well this is because this is almost um doing this talk today and, pre and preparing for it actually basically forced beck and i to actually wrangle our thoughts mm -hmm. um which and i mean we we don't joke about the rabbit holes that we go down <laughs> um so and the, and the you know this has been a couple of years of um of talking about this sort of stuff um and trying to trying to wrestle it into some um Pliable. Yeah. So it's, that's right. Yeah. So so, but getting it clear, like what what actually the issue is, and then also how where might we go with it. Um. So to offer a possible solution. Um. So in terms of um after today, um, one of my things has always been let's not please please don't make me sell ethnography as an interview. Please don't let me um, uh, talk about ethnography as just about real people in real situations, you know. Um, and that's because uh, it's quite often being used in contrast uh, to something like market research, you know. Um, however, I, I'm starting to really think about in my work, you know, big infrastructure projects. I mean, something like considering the consideration of species and neighbourhoods. I mean, that's actually quite a that's that's not such a far-fetched um, link. 
I also think of um, our company has also been doing a lot of work in the ESG space. So that's a really natural fit, I think, for that as well. Um, I think companies with doing purpose work, I think that's really nice as well. Um, so I do think that those links there, but it really is um, that process of unlearning some of the stuff that is already so ingrained um, that I think we've just got by doing this today and we're super keen to, to hear from people so today and tomorrow in the breaks etc um, this has really enabled us to try and get closer to what it what it needs to look like to be able to bring it back to the lovely um, you know dam building skills of the American beaver. I think it's also, you know, it's not necessarily going as far as including non-human personas, which would be great if you did, but it's also about including theory as part of your, you know, design and analysis of processes. Um, so I manage a team of service designers, many of whom who come from an industrial design background, uh, and I often sell it to them as it's, it's the design principles of research. You know, you don't need to go back to first principles to create something every single time. Theories can be an amazing shortcut to get you to, you know, really out there ideas and analysis without having to have done every piece of the work on the way. Yeah, just one one last thing on that actually, because I've just remembered that I did um I did get to take part in a um, design futures workshop where with a colleague of mine it's a couple of years ago where I was the mountain. Um, and it was awesome. Um, so I'm like, tread softly on me, please. Do you know? So, um, so it's it's uh, and it's. Um, I mean, I'm loving. I'm sort of hearing sort of a little bit of a, a theme around sort of play. Um, or it's possibly just what I'm hearing because I want to. Um, but you know, that sort of stuff is really. So I think we just need to get start getting a bit creative with this sort of thing um, to bring in those different perspectives and whose empathy are we sort of bringing in. Thank you both very much. That was great. Thank you.